Welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with Vault Hill, Arabian Business and Najahi Events. Okay, imagine coming from a place like Korea. Everyone's got the same haircut. They wear the same clothes. They drive the same cars. It's really oppressive. Boys and girls don't even intermingle and live in that life. And then when you're 19 years old, moving to the United States, the land of the free and the home of the brave, as they say, to pursue the American dream. Well, that's exactly what happened to my next guest. Her journey has been incredible. Just understand a few things here. She came to the US with nothing. She started a business and sold it for $25 million a few years later, of which she then started further businesses, which were sold for over $3 billion. A fascinating conversation with a remarkable human being who is really really beautiful both inside and out. Cue the music for the incredible Dr. Sabrina Kay. Vault Hill is the world's first human-centric metaverse that's opened its doors for brands and entities to launch their presence in the metaverse in only 48 hours. This is the fastest activation ever and the first time ever any metaverse has offered this. Upon this activation process, brands will receive free virtual land in Vault Hill City and can give life to their metaverse presence by buying buildings in the Vault Hill marketplace and deploy it on their dedicated VLand. Then brands can customize their land using unbounded creativity, they can display their own NFTs or upload different media, logos or digital creations to start to capitalize from their digital assets. Go check out vaulthill.io. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Sabrina, thank you so much for coming to join us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's so it's fun. That, I feel like I kind of already know you because we we chatted on Zoom beforehand and got yeah. a little bit of an understanding. We have mutual friends, obviously, with Ken and Sandy mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. And then here we are chatting away before we start filming and people that have already been in today on the show, you know them and have got connections mm-hmm. with them. So maybe the ecosystem is is not too dissimilar. Yeah, it's always a small world. You told me about what life was like for you when you were younger. And I mm-hmm. want to give everyone some perspective on on who you are and your journey before I probably go in with my curiosity around other aspects to business sure. and stuff like that. But we, we understand Korea mm-hmm. as being two very different places, North Korea, the People's Republic, and South Korea. Sure. And we know all of the negative stuff that that's painted and described about North Korea. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've had guests on the show that escaped mm-hmm. from North Korea. So we, we've got this in the, in the West, or at least where I come from, this really negative connotation towards North Korea. However, South Korea is completely different. Mm-hmm. We have this really warm association mm-hmm. with South Korea. It's like, how could two one country be split in two and the people be so different and, 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 the, and the energy be so different? Yeah, yeah. But when I spoke to you on Zoom, you told me that there were, in the early days, there were lots of similarities. So can you just paint a picture for everyone to understand what it was like growing up in South Korea for you? And and just so that we can kind of teleport ourselves back to that time, what did it look like? Can you paint a picture? Yeah, so 60, 70 years ago, after the Korean War, Korea was the second poorest country in the world. So that's South Korea. See, if you think about it, South Korea was poorer than any African countries or any India or any any part of the country. And we just didn't know that we are living in a very poor country. But everyone in South Korea was just very, very competitive, just by nature, very ambitious and very competitive. Um, the government is, is was a complete dictatorship. There was a president who was elected named President Park Chung-hee. And he was president for like 20 years. So it was not a democracy. You can vote, but it doesn't matter. And he had a 25-year plan to revival of Korea. And that was really, I think, what turned Korea what it is today because of the discipline and focus that Korean people had. 
out of nothing, and also Korea had no resources. So, for example, when I was young, elementary school, we had emergency drills. Everyone wore、um, just uniforms and had exactly same haircut. Every single boys had to shave their head. So that's how Korea was, and we didn't know any better. We didn't know that was weird. Everyone wore just black uniforms, twenty-four、um, seven. There was no other clothes available. There were no other color cars than black. So we didn't know that was weird either. So we always, I mean, growing up, I thought car was just black. <laughs> There was no other color. That's nuts just to think about、yeah. that for a second.、Yeah. I mean, you just imagine. So every car's the same color, and everyone's wearing black, and everyone's got the same haircut. Right. Boys shaved, ladies with the kind of short、yeah. bob. And why was that the norm? Why did they want it to be that way? So it's all government control, no freedom, no creative thinking, no innovation, and you know, it, it's just they want conformity. And when it, it, it's like when you look at North Korea, you kind of like see the pictures of almost exactly the same thing that was happening in South Korea as well. So when you turn eighteen and go to college, then you have a little bit of freedom, and and then college is where you grow up. But when you're growing up from zero to eighteen, you're not even treated like human. You know, you're treated like a robot and complete brainwashing. When I was thirteen years old. They gave, you know, you start a military training, and I had a shotgun. Thirteen-year-old girls, gun. Oh yeah, real guns. But that was also norm. We didn't know that was not, you know, that. And South Korean kids were beat up by parents, the teachers, adults all the time. It was okay to beat up their kids, and that was all normal. So. You know, I jokingly told my mom, who loves me more than anybody in the world, you could have gone to jail if we were like raised in America, because that's that was like okay to just beat up your kids. So South Korea it was just such an interesting country if you think about where it is now, because a lot of the K-pop, all the creativity, innovation, technology, music. You know, these just all came within the last twenty years. That didn't even exist. Eighty-eight Olympics was the first time we saw non-Koreans in Korea. I learned English in Korea from a Korean teacher who did not speak any English. <laughs> <laughs> so I came to the United States when I was nineteen, and I was trying to say thank you. Nobody understood me. And my father told me you have to pick an American name so that you can be assimilated into America, so that you don't sound like a foreign person. I picked Alice. Problem with Alice, I could not pronounce L.、Oh. So every time <laughs> when people ask my name, it was most humiliating experience I had to go through because people look at me like, "Um, how do you spell it?" And when I tried to spell it, and they're like, "Oh, Alice!" Like, yeah, that's what I said. Like, but I could not pronounce it for the longest time. Wow! I just try and think about what that must have been like, you know, being a kid, and everyone being the same, and then you transferring over here. Okay, well, I want to come to America in a while. I want to.、Sure. I just want to stay on Korea. Yeah. So. Lots of brothers and sisters, or just I have two younger brothers. Two younger brothers.、Mm -hmm. So you were the elder sister. Yes. Um, so I'm very good at telling men what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I was trained from when I was young. <laughs> tell, tell me what your what your relationship was like with your dad. Oh, my dad. So in Korea, I think mom and dad were pretty much opposite of my mom and dad. My mother was like a tiger mom. She was the one who disciplined us. She was very focused. She was incredibly ambitious and. She knew exactly when to love us and not to love us. When I get an A plus, she loves me more. When I get an A minus, I am not her favorite daughter. She only had one. Yeah. So you know that conditional love, the craving towards love. Later on, after doing a lot of my you know 
kind of self-help work, I realized that that was one thing I was craving the most. Um, but I got a lot of that from my dad. He kind of like did not care about the accomplishments. He loved music. He loved poetry. Um, a lot of the American black and white films. So I kind of grew up with a very romantic dad and, and a very kind of tiger, Asian tiger mom. And that dichotomy of having those two parents gave me the development of right and left brain. It helped me mm -hmm. in business later. Who were you closer to, mom or dad? Both. Very, okay. very close to both of them. So you had a, a really loving family as a kid. You've yeah. got these two yeah. different aspects to your life, you know, mum being tough, dad being soft and gentle, right. and, and lots of love in the family. Yeah. Well, that's kind of like a nice recipe for a it's successful a, it's childhood. It's a good, yeah? good recipe, but, you know, also there were a lot of challenges. Um, when I was 13 years old, my dad's business failed, and had brought a lot of big turmoil to to the family. And it's funny thing about shame is the th I was so ashamed and my whole family was so ashamed that we didn't tell anybody. And I tried so hard to hide it from even from my best friends. And now I talk about it at a podcast. It's funny you say that word shame, because as you said it and you said when I was seven, so that was 1977, my father, he went bankrupt mm. and his business failed. Yeah. And I as you said that, I just started thinking about him and I wonder whether he to this day at 78 years old, mm. whether he whether he ever recovered from that, because yeah. the shame yeah. and the embarrassment mm -hmm. of that going wrong mm -hmm. yeah. is is. For, for many people, overwhelming, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Just even thinking about it bleeds my heart. Really? Mm -hmm. Did your dad recover, though, from that emotionally? I don't know. Because he, um, after, we, we don't talk about it. One thing about Asian families, we're very good at putting everything under the rug and pretend like nothing ever happened. Okay. I see my Jewish friends, they talk about everything i mean like everything at the dinner table and i'm like i'm fascinated i want to be a jew right it, it, because it's so open and they go to therapies in asia you go to therapy that's asylum worse than jail that's the only time and that's one of the things when you grow up in a very controlled environment there's no therapy there's nothing to talk about and you don't bring up shame you don't bring up anything that's embarrassing you just hide everything and only show the accomplishments but then you also have would have different categories of what embarrassing was back then maybe it's not embarrassing in today's society but what it was back then so many more yeah, things were absolutely so yeah. so who would you go to then when you were young in your teenage years in in Korea who would you go to and tell your problems to you don't tell problems would you not talk to mom and dad or your no, best friend you no, never no you don't talk about it so it's like in England we would say stiff up a lip you know head down tail up and yeah. that's that's not a conversation yeah so after I was grown up and came to America and became American now I'm very good at talking about it by paying someone to listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, okay, that's a fair point. Right. When you think about that, it's like now we've got this movement around mental health and yeah. men's mental health mm, and mm. men are being encouraged to talk about their problems mm. and, you know, depression is spoken about yeah. you know, quite heavily and people are told, you know, if, if you're depressed and you have anxiety, you should bring it up. Mm -hmm. But there's there's this, almost this, instead of this door slowly opening, it's mm -hmm. almost just come wide open mm -hmm. and kind of all problems and, mm -hmm. and all moods mm -hmm. can be categorized. Yeah. You know, yeah. and we know we have good days and bad days, don't yeah. we? You know, yeah. we, we're not all depressed. Yeah. You know, yeah. we just, you know, I feel a bit low today. I'm a bit, oh, yeah. this week I'm a bit down in the dumps or yeah. my girlfriend left me, so I'm fed up or I hate my job and I'm a bit fed up rather sure. than being really depressed. But it's almost like it's saying, you need to talk about everything. You need to bring all of that kind of stuff out now. You know, you're, you're so right. There's... There's always something, right? And by not talking about it and by not focusing on it, your norm changes. So I think it gave me pretty good propelled energy 
because when you're stressed, you become hypervigilant, and the hypervigilance becomes very. If you at least turn it into a positive energy, the fear becomes a such incredible force. And there are some things that has happened throughout my life that each adversity and that adversity becomes fear, and that fear became such a positive force for me to accomplish so much than I, I could ever have imagined myself. I'm going to come on to that. I think about most people that have created some form of success in their life,、mm. have used some form of trauma、mm. or tragedy、mm. or pain of some sort that was in existence in many respects in their childhood、mm -hmm. that they've reacted to. So for me, it was the bullies. You know, the bullies.、Yeah. I wanted to prove the bullies、mm. wrong. How dare you? And I spent you know the next twenty years trying to prove these bullies wrong. You know, I、yeah. know their first name, their surname. I know their home address. You know, I know exactly what they look like. I can picture them vividly right this minute. And other people have this kind of experience in different ways. But you've got this loving family. You've got mum and dad. You've got this kind of like it's almost like the 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 the, the cookie cutter type example, isn't it? It's like two point、yes、four and no, kids. And, you know. Okay, so tell me how, tell me what I don't understand about. Yeah. That, so again, you know, there's a lot of mental health that people don't talk about.、Um, I didn't know my mother was a bipolar. Okay. So there's like loving, passionate, amazing person.、Um, All of a sudden, turns and it's okay to beat up kids in Korea. So, I didn't know what was happening, and there were a lot of those. And obviously, because of the shame and because of the stigma, we never talked about it. My mother passed away a couple years ago, and I have gone through pretty deep on the research of the mental health, and I. Told my brother maybe mom was bipolar, and I both both of my brothers are doctors, and they looked at me and they said, "Oh, you think so?" As if this was a known fact that we never talked about. Got it. But like we never talked about it. None of us acknowledged it. We just all were thinking, and then like they were laughing at me when I came out, and then when I wanted to talk about it because. You know, my childhood was just so chaotic, and I just didn't know when that was gonna hit.、Mm -hmm. And when my dad's business failed, it was even worse. So, you know, I just didn't know what the good days were, bad days were. Again, those are the things that actually helps you to endure later, because I. I know when the pain comes, how to prevent it.、Mm -hmm. um, I know how to prevent failures. I I think about what are the risks, and how do you mitigate risks. And I think about all those, especially in business world, because there's something there's something as you tell this story that the, your dad having a business go bust that. That has triggered something in you in some、mm -hmm. way for your future、yeah. life, you know. And, and I, I didn't really with my dad going bust as well. I didn't, I didn't think so much about that.、Mm. But as I'm talking to you, it's、sure. kind of it's making me feel something. When we were filming a documentary a couple of months ago, and we were in Nepal, and while we were there, we met a community of people, and the girls from the age of nine years old、uh, mm. become prostitutes. Now, as I say that, you think, "Oh, that's horrific." I think that's horrific, and it is horrific. But for these girls, it's their parents that make them prostitutes,、mm. and they—it wasn't for a lot of these girls. It was just life. That was a way of that life. was just what you do, you、yeah. know. That we can make money doing this, and so guess what? We got to make money because、yeah. we need to put food on the table.、Mm. It makes me think about the. The trauma in later years in their life、mm. that they will go through when they realize how bad that might have、mm. been. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Human beings are so resilient, and all animals have a God's gift to survive. So when you're going through that trauma, you don't feel the trauma. When you do, you do not survive. So there is this natural mechanism in your brain that just blocks the trauma. It doesn't feel like trauma. When you think about it later, 
when your life becomes norm, then, oh, that was really horrific. I was beat up all the time. That was really horrific. Just give but, me perspective. You say you was beaten up. Your mum used to whack you with something, a wooden spoon, or she used I, to... Out of respect for my mother, I'm not going to go into details. Okay. But it was horrific. My life was horrific. And it's just something that I don't talk about it publicly. Mm -hmm. um, it's just something that we never talk about it publicly. It's, but also at the same time, it was really confusing for a child because it's, it's someone who loves you the most. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand that until very recently that it was a mental health. That was her issue. Yeah. And because mm -hmm. there was no no one acknowledged it. Yeah. There was no there was no treatment, there's no cure, there's nothing available to her and she didn't know how to do it. So if you had no leg, but you are put out to be a track runner in a team, she somehow figured it out. Mm. And she just became a runner with no legs. My mom was just really a very determined person. You're with your mum passing a couple of years ago. Does it make you feel sad that you missed conversations with her that you, you could have had together to talk about this kind of stuff? Or do you think that it was better that you didn't? I think it's better I didn't. Really? Yeah. If I did, I it could have probably taken us 20 years to mend. And... Um, I think towards the end of our life is when I kind of started understanding the mental health issues and um, doing a lot of research on how these so-called curriculum of treatments, mm -hmm. because a lot of people treat mental health issues kind of in a silo, in different silo treatments, and there's no curriculum or progressive of the treatments. I think it would have taken very, very long. And my mother being in such denial, it would have been a very difficult conversation. I had a really, really good adult life with my mom. And I just really treasure those times. Focus on the good bits. Yeah, because, you know, when she realized I was an adult, she never thought about abusing me in any other way. She took her anger and frustration to elsewhere, but um, it was not on me. Mm -hmm. And we had lovely, lovely relationship. So you say that my mum, my and it's not the same, but my mum used to chase me around the house with a rolling pin. Mm -hmm. And she would whack my knees with the rolling pin on my ankles. And she would chase me and chase me up and down the stairs, wherever it was, and she'd always get me no matter what. Yeah. And then, Moms are so good at this. <laughs> they're just a professional. In the Middle East, the Arabs, uh, the, the, their mums have the slipper. Yeah, you know? yeah, right. But we, we had the rolling pin. Did she throw it at you and no, just it, got you? No. She would, she would, oh. she, it would, I don't know how she'd, her arm would extend about a meter and a half and she'd reach out and she'd get me. But there was a, there was a, there was a time that came one day where she went for me with the rolling pin. Mm -hmm. And as she went for me, I grabbed it. Oh, wow. And as I grabbed it, I'm like, no. Okay, that hurts. Yeah. And it was the last time she did it. It was almost mm. like she realized I was now big enough to defend yeah. myself and mm. it wasn't going to work anymore. And so from that moment onwards, the rolling pin never came out. There was none of that. And so I, whether yeah. I was 16 or 18, I can't remember. No, I can't have been 18, but I must have been 16 years old. So how old were you when, when, when you kind of crossed over in her mind to being a, 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 a young lady, let's say? That's really interesting because... I think I was probably like a 14 or 15. My mom was kind of just similar thing. She was, you know, doing her thing. And I saw my brother, who is a year younger than me, grabbing her arm. And I just looked at him with such marvel, surprise, because I never thought about that was even a possibility. And then she never beat him, but she, like, you know, I was still not strong enough. Uh, my mom kind of started respect me in a sense uh -huh. that uh, when I started my business, 
Okay. And she realizes that I was going to be the head of the household because uh -huh. I'm the oldest. Uh -huh. And my mom and dad started working for me. And then it was like a game over. She worshipped the ground I walked on. That's, that's almost like that whole kind of like tribal thing when you have, you know, Lion King, isn't it? It's yeah. like Simba comes through and then he becomes the head of the pride. And yeah. it's like somebody takes over. I like that. Okay, so let's take take me on the journey. So you're in, in South Korea. How old were you when the discussions about moving to America came? So and then my, how long did it then take to get there? So my dad, after his business failed, so this is probably one of the most candid interviews that I am disclosing why we really came to America. Because when people ask, why did you come to America? We usually say for better opportunity, period. Um, but my dad came first and because he didn't have an opportunity in Korea to make it. Mm -hmm. He came to America thinking that he could pave the way for, for all of us to come later. He didn't have a green card, so he was working as a janitor, sushi chef, whatever job he could get to get a sponsorship to get a green card. So when he did, we came, I was 18 years old. My birthday is January. I almost was becoming 19. So 18, 19, that's when I came with the whole family. How long had dad been here at that time then? So he was here for four years, four or five years. Okay. And uh, my father, who was, in my eyes, the most, you know, handsome, tall, kind, and very, very intelligent, successful person was a janitor in America. And he even had a beard. He looked like a homeless person. And when he came to pick us up at the airport, because I only remember him clean shaved, wearing three-piece suits mm -hmm. and a tie. He came in with a T-shirt and jeans and with a beard. In Korea, nobody grows beard, especially at that time, unless you're a homeless person. So I was like so shocked. The man who came to pick us up, the, the man that I've longed for so long. Um, but, you know, again, the life is what it is. So we all became janitors. He still wanted to be a dad. He still wanted to be the head of the household. So his whole thing was, in America, that's how he starts, you know, as if he knows everything about America. So, for example, here's a funny story. He said, in America, when new families move into town, we go to the neighbors and bring a small flower pot and we say hello to these families. So we went to the supermarket at that time. It was called Lucky's. So we went to Lucky's and bought these like a small little pot of plants. Mm -hmm. It was like $5. We bought five of them. $25 was a lot of money for us. Mm -hmm. So we, we bought them and uh, left five of them, the four of them at home and took one to the neighbor's house. And you can imagine this is like a very middle class, all white or like a lower middle class, all white neighborhood. LA? In, yeah, in Los Angeles, a little town called Lakewood. Okay. Even to this day, it's a very low middle class white neighborhood. We go and knock on the door and these like two older couple comes out and see five Asian people. No one spoke English. They looked at us and then they just banged the door. And then my dad goes, oh, they are busy. And in America, when they're busy, they don't talk about it. They just close the door. So we need to respect that. So let's go to the next, next house. So we were going around and no one spoke English. But to us, he was fluent in English. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, we, that's what we thought. We jokingly now tell my dad. <laughs> Um, how did your English get worse and worse every year you live in America? Because we, we speak English better than he does. So no one spoke English. So we finally went to the third house and this couple says, oh, come on in or whatever we heard. So it seemed like they're welcoming us in. So we all sat there, five of us, five of us in a sofa. 
It was like the most uncomfortable thing ever. And then my dad was kind of communicating. I'm sure he was sweating bullets. <laughs> and we came came to our home and we said, you know, let's let's not go to the next house. Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> So there are so many of these like in America stories with my dad. And one of them is in America, there's no shame on how you make money. Okay. And that just like stayed with me for a long time. We all became janitors, but because in America, there's no shame in how you make money as long as it's an honest living, mm -hmm. we were okay to be janitors. Mm -hmm. If we were in Korea, there's no way we would starve to death rather than being a janitor. Wow. But we all became janitors. And how long did it take you to, to, to make peace with that? Because that must have been really difficult at first. Two seconds. Oh, really? Because it was in America. <coughs> ah, okay. Because Dad said in America, that's it's okay. In America, so you're like, it's okay. okay. And you, you just, changed, just your, changed your... Changed it. We took as if just like we were going door to door, trying to deliver this $5 pot. <laughs> we, we accepted what was accepted in America. Uh -huh. And even to this date, they just stayed with me in America. There's no shame in how you make money as long as it's an honest living. Amazing. Okay, next part of the journey. So you're here now. Dad's been here a few years, making his way. You're janitors, you're living in Lakewood. Okay, you're, you're 19 years old. Did you go to school or go to work? So I went to school. I didn't speak any English. So I was studying computer science and mathematics, not because I loved computer science and mathematics, but because that was the only major I could succeed. And that's what my Korean college counselor told me. I didn't understand anything. I just, it was not good. First boy I talked to, so growing up in Korea, one other thing is that boys and girls are not allowed to talk until you go to college. What do you mean not allowed to talk? They're not allowed to talk. Can you play? You can play in up to kindergarten. Okay. Boys and girls can play up to kindergarten. From elementary school to high school, you're completely cut out. So boys and girls are in different schools. They're all girls schools and all boys schools. There's no mix of the two. You are not allowed to talk to the boys. Okay, but like you're 15 years old and you're developing. You can't you even, and you, 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 can boys be, you can actually be expelled from school if you talk, if you get caught talking to boys. So let's say it's the weekend and you're walking down the street and you're with one of your girlfriends and you, I don't know where you're walking somewhere and you're 15 years old and two boys walk the other way. Do you not like, like none of mm, that? No, no. Shit, really? Later on, I found out that was happening, but that wasn't me. <laughs> I was a very law-abiding citizen. <laughs> okay, good, right. So, uh, yeah, so, but, so. It, it, but it was not common. These are the girls that, who are really kind of rebellious girls that okay. I wouldn't even associate. None of my friends, because my mother totally controlled who I could be friends with, she would make a rice cake and go to their home to see what their family life is like before they're allowed to be my friend. So my mom had total control over all my friends and my friends were just as square as me. And wow. none of us square. <laughs> we were just square. All four corners were tucked. So while you're when you're living in the States then, so you, your cousins, your 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 brothers, your dad are the people the men that you speak to at first, yeah? So and we had also no kissing scenes on TV, movies. It was actually misdemeanor to kiss in public. You can go to jail. Not in the same cells, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that was kind of how repressed the Korea was when I was growing up. And if you're not a virgin, there's absolutely no chance you will ever be treated like a human. You're going to be a trash. So it was so critically important to stay virgin before you're married. Okay. So did you? So I came to America. And first time I saw people kissing was on a school lawn. And I saw a boy and a girl kissing. I just stood there. I was like, 
totally mesmerized. I couldn't believe this was happening before my eyes. Mesmerized good or shock and both, horror? Both, both. It was like really weird. But you know, life in America was not like all rosy for me. I was busy. Mm -hmm. I was working three jobs and it was like, we were trying to make ends meet. It was very busy. It was very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, without going into details, I found out I was pregnant in a college health center. And How old were you? Freshman in college. You got pregnant. I got pregnant and I didn't know. I had no idea. Um, I went in just to get some Tylenol and it was right before the finals and I figured I need to get some Tylenol because I have a headache. And uh, she asked me some questions, still broken English. and. Uh, told me I was pregnant. I was crying so much that I had a seizure. And then I came home and... Shit, you had to tell mom and dad. Yeah. I've never seen my mom crying the way she did. And she was just so broken that she wasn't even mad at me. And then I saw my dad crying for the first time. Shame. Yeah. And then we decided to talk to the boy, and uh, we got married in three weeks because we wanted to make sure that nobody finds out. Korean boy? Chinese. Chinese-Korean. Chinese-Korean. Yeah, because he spoke Korean. Okay, so Chinese-Korean boy. You got married in three weeks. And then you decide to have the baby. Mm -hmm. Whoa. Yeah. So I dropped out of college and uh, just working, trying to make ends meet and um, trying to be a mom. So that's how I started my life in America. Goodness me. You don't make it easy for yourself, do you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you deal with the cards that was dealt for you. I was not a dealer. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm sure that some people have different opinions as to who dealt the cards there. Okay, so you have a boy or a girl? Girl. I have a little girl. Mm -hmm. And what was her relationship like with her grandmother? Did she have a good relationship with her grandmother? Interestingly, she, when she was born... The moment that she was born, I think I grew up and became an adult. Okay. I knew I had to take care of her. And I knew I was going to love her unconditionally. Um, and shortly after, you know, her father and I didn't make it. And, you know, we were both young. He left. We've never seen him again. So my daughter... I don't know if she knows what he looks like because she was four years old and uh, last time she saw him. And, um, you know, we kind of like raised each other and my parents lived with us. So when he left, that's kind of like, was kind of like waking wake up call for me that, and my parents moved in to help raise my daughter. It was like, we had to do something. And I read a Korean newspaper, it was translated from LA Times, that there's a fashion software coming into this world and it's gonna revolutionize the fashion industry. And then there was also opposite opinion that fashion industry is very creative and mm -hmm. it's never going to be adopted in the fashion industry. And I kind of felt like this is going to change life. I did a lot of research because we were actually cleaning the Korean jobber, you know, fashion district. So we knew a lot of Korean uh, designers and pattern makers and manufacturers. My dad um, had a couple of people he knew. So I went and talked to them about why they're not using computers. Mm -hmm. And I found out 
then it's because main reason is because they nobody knows how to use it, and they don't have the time to train these people. So I made a bold call, just a cold call to this computer company. From the Korean newspaper article, there's a phone number at the end. Uh-huh. I dialed that number, and this is when God winks. Everything happens. Uh-huh. Weirdly enough, he answered the phone. He was John Robinson, who was the regional vice president of that software company. He was walking by, and the receptionist went to the bathroom. He picked up the phone. So we got together, and we ended up talking. He told me that we have about a million dollars worth of software that we could donate to universities and colleges. And he said, well, why don't you start a college? And I came home just so excited and told my parents, we're going to have this donation and we can start, you know, start a college and teach people how to use computers. And they were so excited. Small little problem. I didn't know how to start a college. I was going to say, (laughs) that was the next question. How on earth do you start a college? Right, right. So you've got this guy that's planted this seed. He's basically said, I'll give you this software Mm -hmm. if you use it to educate people. Right. And then our software, right? So I went to a library and started like, you know, researching. What year was that? Tell me what year that was. So 1991. 91, okay. Young and stupid. (laughs) (laughs) And when you're young and stupid, you're brave. Yeah. I didn't know I didn't, you know, not knowing was an obstacle. Yeah. So you had to start a college. You just figure out how to start a college. Okay. And I went to the library and I saw there is an association called the California Association for Private Post-Secondary Schools. And weirdly enough, a week later, they were having a conference in Lake Tahoe. So I had this beat up station wagon that all the springs are coming out from the back seat and my brothers actually got a spray can and spray canned my entire car it was like ugliest car and my friends called it Hershey bar because it looked like a big Hershey bar um <laughs> it was a matte brown spray painted yeah, yeah. car and it was like I drove that to Lake Tahoe really and uh I went went there and ran into the very nice gentleman uh, who was at the conference. And he said, can I help you? And I said, yes, I'm here to learn how to start a college. And he looked at me and he goes, uh, why don't you sit in that corner? Um, it's You are not registered, right? And I said, no, I'm not registered. Why don't you sit in that corner and just stay for as long as you like. And after the conference is over, we can talk about what your needs are because I need to attend all the all the people. That was my first mentor, ah. Bill Clohan, who was the Undersecretary of Education during Reagan administration. Many, many years later, I was inducted to Hall of Fame uh, of the pr- private school industry, and Bill was giving me the award and he was inducting me into Hall of Fame because he was inductee as well. He is telling the story a little bit differently. He says, it was Lake Tahoe at, during the CAFS conference, and I was a you know new president of the CAFS, and I came, and this young lady, obviously very, very lost, was coming up to me and said, is this a conference? And I said, yes, can I help you? Thinking that I need to tell her not to come in. Yeah. And she says, yes, I'm here to start a college. And he go, he said, I rolled my eyes and I didn't know where to begin. So I told her to sit there because she would be bored out of her mind <laughs> and would go away. <laughs> but after two, two days, she stuck through and had everything researched and, you know, got every, everyone was rallying for her and I knew I had no option but to help her. So when you are ready, I think the world conspires to help you. Uh And all these angels just started really coming around. And I filled out the application 
And I went to Sacramento to drop it off instead of because someone told me that if you mail it, it will get lost. I ran into literally the director of the of the regulatory agency mm -hmm. in the elevator. Mm -hmm. And he told me to come into his office, help me to get the application through. So it was like a series of weird luck that happened to me. And I was able to start a college at a garage space in Koreatown, killing cockroaches and sweeping up floors, putting the cheapest and the least expensive desks and chairs and a million dollar software that was donated to me. And how long did you run that college for? 11 years. And so you took it from nothing to something that became very valuable. Enough money that I could live for the rest of my life. So, you, so who did you sell it to? A publicly traded company called Education Management. Okay. And they approached you or you approached them? Oh, no. They approached me. I didn't know how to sell school. I owned 100%. You didn't, you didn't know how to set a school right, up, but then you right. did. I didn't know how to sell anything at that point. How I, much did you sell it for? Um, <laughs> $25 million. $25 million? Yeah. 11 and years after you started it? I owned 100% of the company, had a $2,000 in, um, in debt. Uh, that was my copy machine lease. Your copy machine lease was yeah. $2,000 in debt. Because I didn't and they know gave you a check for $25 million. Yeah. When they told you how much they were going to pay for it, how did you feel? You know, it was interesting. We shook hands and every single penny that he promised, he paid. There were a lot of stories. I mean, I can tell mm. you hours, hours of stories of the M&A process and the exit is never exactly the way it works out. And now I've started five companies and exited five companies. You know, it's never like my first company, but it worked out exactly how we shook hands and that's how, how we sold it. And I became the CEO of Special Projects at EDMC. And we, the very computer, the very first computer software that I um, started with, we put it on all art institutes of America. There are 57 campuses. And then whole project was sold to Goldman Sachs for $3.4 billion. $3.4 billion. Right. And how much of that was yours? Some of them. <laughs> so second bite of the apple was also sweeter than the first bite of the apple. Did you, okay, this is interesting. So the, the, the second bite, $3.4 billion, yeah? Mm -hmm. And you got a big chunk of that too? Or I a chunk a, of that? Okay. A good chunk of it, yes. Okay. A billion? No. Okay, no. hundreds of millions. Yes. Okay. It, it, the reason I'm asking is not to be nosy because sure. the, 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 the actual precise number is not relevant. Mm. What's actually relevant is your relationship with money for my mm. question here. Yes. Because yes. I, 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 I became wealthy at some point in my life. Yeah. And, yeah. and I was having a conversation with, the, with somebody this morning where money has very little significance to me now. Mm, mm -hmm. um, but I remember when I first earned really good money. Yeah, yeah. So I moved to the Far East when I was 23 years old mm. and I went, went into a commission sales role. Mm. And I had, and they said, you can't come and work out here unless you've got 3000 pounds in your bank account to see you through the first month or two. Mm. And I didn't have that, but I had two credit cards. I had a Visa and a MasterCard and each had 1,500 pounds on. Oh my goodness. And I, and I got to the end of the first month and I knew I'd spent the money. And my mum sent me a fax. Mm -hmm. She said, Spencer, there's these two credit card statements that have come through in the post. You're not gonna be able to pay them from there. Would you like me to pay them for you now? Oh and you God. can pay them when you come home. She didn't know my situation. Yes. She had yeah. no idea. She yeah. thought I was going off to this well-paid fancy job on the other side sure. of the world. And she paid the credit card bills, which gave me another four weeks. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of that four weeks, I got my first commission check, mm. which was about 4,000 pounds. I was like, yes. The end of the next month, I got another commission check, which was about five and a half thousand pounds. Mm. And at the end of the next month, I got another one, which is a bit more than that. But then I got a second payment. Yeah. of 28,000 pounds. Oh my goodness, wow. And so 
this money had come into my bank account. My mum saw my statement. She, she's like, Spence, you better call your employer. They've sent you money they shouldn't have sent you. And I'm like, I'm not calling them. But <laughs> 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 28,000, I'd never yes. seen 28,000 pounds in my sure. life yet. Yeah. And that was in my bank. And I'm yeah. like, I'm not telling anyone. She's, yeah. and my mum's like, no, you are. Mm -hmm. You're definitely telling someone. Yeah. Call up HR or pay, payroll yeah. or whatever. And tell them. So I gingerly made the phone call. Yeah. Oh, I'm seven hours ahead of London. Do I really want to make this call? And I make this phone call. And um, I speak to the lady in payroll. And I'm like, yeah, I, I got I got my commission money through, but I got another payment. I think that might, might have been a mistake. So she was like, let me check. And she came back. She goes, no, that's your quarterly bonus. I was like, what? She said, yeah, that's, so you get paid a certain amount each month. And then if you've hit your target, you get this bonus. And I'm like, well, that's my money. Yes, yes. She's like, yeah. I was like, put the phone down quickly before she could change her mind. <laughs> and I called my mum. I said, no, no, it's my money, mum. She's like, your money? Yeah. yeah. And, um, and this is the first time I ever flew first mm, class. Mm. I bought a first class ticket yeah. because I thought I'd won the lottery. Yeah, yeah. And money had such meaning for me at that time. Mm. It was like, oh, my God, I can live this life. I can do those things. Yeah. And it had all this meaning for this period of time in my life until I got to a stage where I was earning big money mm. and big money was about half a million dollars a month. Mm -hmm. Then it became nothing. Mm. It became, it, it actually became dangerous mm. and damaging to many parts of my life, my mm. well-being, my relationships mm. and stuff like that. So the reason I'm telling you that is that you get this 25 million, you've never had 25 million, you've never seen 25 million, all of a sudden there's 25 million comes to you. So mine's a little different than okay. yours. Um, so I, funny about the credit card story, your mom had an ability to pay for your credit card bills. My parents had no credit. So they had an ability to give me their credit to get more credit cards. Right. So they could give you their credit because no credit is better than bad credit. Okay. So they, in America, debt society, if you have no credit, they'll give you as many credit cards as you want. When I first started, we, three of us together had over 20 credit cards. That's how I financed my company. Worst way to finance yeah, your company. Yeah. Right? <laughs> High interest rates. <laughs> High interest rates. We're swapping in, you know, credit cards yeah. so that we don't pay this debt. Yeah, because you have the, sometimes you have this six, oh the, the, my six God. three months and six months interest free. It was things. like an eighteen percent interest at that time. So it was it was pretty pretty yeah, hairy. Yeah. And when you have eighteen percent interest payment to coming, you are a fast running animal. You work so hard, and I think that. That, that those fear during that time really made me go fast. Urgency. 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 Yeah. All it's over like, it. and I did not even realize anything. One day, my dad, because he did all the books and I didn't touch anything, you know, I was like still a little girl. They gave me money to live <laughs> and like they were in charge of everything. And my dad came into my office and he said, we have a million dollars in a checking account. What do you want to do? And I said, Dad, I have a meeting. It didn't even like, it didn't register me. Yeah. But I think that was a moment. It was like my dad telling me that and I kind of felt safe. And then I was making a lot of money. That's the reason why, you know, the company paid you know, a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So we we're making- So you were living a nice lifestyle anyway. Very okay. life. So money was, when I sold it and had $25 million in my checking account, nothing changed. I was already buying designer clothes okay. and, you know, living in a nice house. Like I literally did nothing. You know what I did when I first sold my company? Go on. I went back to school. Interesting. Because I still didn't have a college degree but I felt like such a fraud. I was selling college degrees, was started a university telling people how important education is, how important it is to graduate and get jobs and be, yeah. be a well-educated person. You were a phony. I was a phony. I didn't tell anyone I didn't go to college or I didn't graduate. And it was like such, it was like, I couldn't sleep at night. I just always thought, what if someone finds out? Two things I was really afraid was, what if someone finds out I was divorced or don't have a husband? I would not be respected.
because I was in a role model business. What if someone finds out I didn't go to college? This is all attached to shame and、It's、guilt all, and like、exactly. something that's all-consuming in many、mm-hmm. ways. So. You, this money goes into your account. Were you sad to sell the business at first? Was it was it a difficult decision? It was. The decision of selling the business was not difficult because it was a right decision. Okay. The company who bought the business was the the best company that I could have sold to. It was education management at that time was really the gold standard in private universities, and、um, the founder. Bob Newsom was like a, the greatest mentor I could have had. I want, I aspire to be that man. You、okay. know, he had all the characteristics of a person that I wanted to be. So it was a great decision. I just did not know what it's like to sell a baby. I didn't know, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, what life is like as post-sale. Nobody told me this. Everyone says congratulations. I was massively dis- depressed. I had no identity. I didn't know who I was anymore, and it was just really, really difficult. Some people drink. Some people do drugs. Some people become a sexaholic. I became all of those. <laughs> none of that, <laughs> because I don't drink. I don't do drugs, and I don't do casual sex. So it was like I had nothing to do. I went back to school. But hold on, how long how, after you sold the business? When you went into that that kind of that space of of, of feeling empty, how long before you went back to school? Was that like a weeks, months, what? Like the next day. Really? Yeah. yeah. That and, and that, again, that that's that's. A lot of people wouldn't necessarily know it after not being in that position. That's that was a really smart move, because I was the guy、yeah. that went into the void. I see. But it wasn't drugs. It wasn't sex. It wasn't alcohol. It was emptiness and depression.、Mm. No value. No meaning.、Mm. No purpose. I stood for nothing all of a sudden, and I decided that my kids have got a great stepfather、mm. because I was divorced.、Mm. There's enough money for everybody.、Yeah. They don't need me. Yeah. And I. I wasn't able to make.、Mm. I wasn't in the right headspace to make a smart decision. Yeah, but you did, and I admire you for that. Workaholism is the loneliest disease in the world, because people praise you for it. And for a people pleaser, workaholic is the worst, because. You feel like you're doing something positive, but you're actually destroying yourself. I was on twenty-one charity boards. I was doing four graduate degrees, and I kept starting new companies, all at the same time. And people admired admired me, praised me, called me an inspiration. Because I was the greatest philanthropist, the youngest philanthropist, I was doing all the, all the good things for the world. I was just slowly dying inside, and、Were、I didn't、single? even know it. Were you single? Yes, of course. You were single at that time as well, so there was no relationship. Well, because I was not allowed to tell people I was divorced. I. We had this phantom husband. I was very loyal to.、Um, I, you know, when when I got divorced, it kind of felt like my life was just done as a woman because I'm not virgin anymore. Very overtly, not a virgin by being a mom, and not only I'm not a virgin. I I was also married and have a child. So I never thought that was it's even possible that any man would ever want me. So you've got this playing around in your head, this、mm-hmm. story that you've sold yourself, and you've like really bought into that, and you really believe that, and that that holds back so many other parts of your life, and so. Then, then this work, throwing yourself into work and being this workaholic, and you're getting praised for that. You've got no family support unit to go home to, as in a husband that can sit and help encourage. I had a family support. I lived with my parents all the way through. All the way through. Okay. Because they were raising my daughter. 
what's really interesting is that hardwiring system of woman's worth is by being a virgin and being a virtuous woman was kind of congruent with my parents and me all together. So no one disputed. You know, my parents never said, you should get remarried, you should have a life. They were just really happy I was succeeding at my work. Mm. And they wanted to help me and support me as much as they could. And also at the same time, I was really head of the household. And, you know, my brothers were going to med medical school, so they weren't really making money. So if I didn't work, <laughs> the family would have collapsed. And luckily, I, we had enough money from my business for whole family to live very well. Uh, when my mother passed away, I went to her closet and she loved going to Rodeo Drive and shopping. So every week I took her to Rodeo Drive and bought her designer clothes. She had all these amazing designer clothes in the garment back, mint condition. She did not feel worthy enough to wear these clothes. So it's very complicated. You know, our lives are so complicated, but if you come out of that, all that darkness, it's just fun and easy. You know, you can't, you can choose, you can make complicated or complex or fun and easy. Here's something that I heard uh, from one of the podcasts, the difference between complex and complicated. Complicated is a toaster. <laughs> so toaster is a complicated, right? Mm -hmm. You need a lot of electricity and all of that to make a little slice of bread to toast perfectly. Complex is a cat. <laughs> cat is a complex, right? <laughs> so when someone asks, are you complicated or complex? You kind of need to know the difference between the two. Yeah. But I chose not to choose complex cat or toaster. I want to choose this toy that is life and has so many different bells that you can just ring any bell that you want and whatever comes out is just fun and easy. I didn't know that was even my choice. I didn't know that I only had a cat or, or toaster. So I was going back and forth with a cat and toaster Mm. And when you, when you do the work and when you kind of figure it out, there's this toy. There's so many other options in life. It's like you don't have to choose a cat or a toaster. Those, I played with those. They were not that much fun. I play with other things. I, I play with the sunset. I play with the music. I play with, you know, the wind on your, uh, in your hair. They are really fun. Do you spend as much time working today as you spent 10 years ago? Yes. And do you work I have on... no stress, though. There's a big difference. And what, what enables you not to have stress? I think I was addicted to stress because that gave me that edge. Mm -hmm. They call it a T personality, trauma personality. So the, like Navy SEALs, they want to be in that edge all the time. Mm -hmm. Kobe Bryant was one of them. Mm -hmm. That's why he does really the best job in the last four seconds mm -hmm. when he is the one who has to make that shoot and then you win the game. That happens all the time. That was me. What does, what does success mean to you? That you're comfortable in your own skin. Hmm. And you can breathe anytime that you want to breathe as hmm. fully as you want. Tell me about how you see the education system in the United mm, States now. Wow. Spencer, how long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> that can be the last couple of questions if you want. We can finish in 10 minutes. Um, America is the greatest country in the world. And I love America. I'm a big fan of America. It has the agility, freedom, opportunities, equality beyond any other country can provide. 
it's just really the land of heaven on earth. Only Americans, despite America, I think the rest of the world still admire America for what it is. Unfortunately, this number one economy in the world has a third world education and healthcare system. It is an American crime that inner city kids who are born in different zip code do not have the right opportunity as the rich kids who have private education access. You go to a lot of developed countries, they have access to education. Now education and knowledge is completely ubiquitous, but Americans in inner cities don't know how to use that knowledge to move ahead. So it's not about knowledge anymore because it used to be education was really, the knowledge was kept in the Ivy League institutions and the greatest professors were the treasures of the knowledge and they wanted to transfer that treasure from their brain to your brain and you had to go to Harvard, Yale, or Penn to get to that knowledge. There's no professor who's better than Google or YouTube nowadays. You can get access anywhere. There's so much information. Now it's more of a curation, organization, and understanding of how to learn learn things. The curiosity is so important. This is probably one of the most exciting times in America that we can really change how we change the education system. It doesn't have to be 12 years. It doesn't have to be four years of college with 90 units to graduate. It's just, it, there's so many other opportunities. Apprenticeship, really project-based learning, um, learning from you know different type of sources, uh, collaboration with different peer groups. Mm -hmm. There are so many opportunities and it's, it's a very, very exciting time. Is it something that you can do something about? That's exactly what I'm working on. <laughs> Sabrina, I know we've been chatting for a long time and I could probably spend the next couple of hours digging and digging and learning more and more and more, but maybe for now. Yes. Thank you for coming to join me on the show today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Ciao.